Chapter Twelve of Ride Proud Rebel by Andre Norton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Gorillas. Boyd stirred. Shelley. His call sounded loud in the now silent room. Drew set his hand across the boy's mouth, dividing his attention between Boyd and Weatherby. They had no way of putting out the fire whose light might be providing a beacon through the dark. The Indian moved back a little from the window. Riders coming down the lane. His whisper was a thread. Now Drew could hear, too, the ring of hoofs on the iron-hard surface of the ground. A horse nickered, one of those which had brought Boyd's stretcher, or perhaps one of the newcomers. Kirby whipped about the door and was now lost in the shadows of the next room. Weatherby looked to Drew, then to the loft ladder against the far wall. In answer to that unspoken question, Drew nodded. As the Cherokee swung up into the hiding place, Drew eased one of his colts out of the holster, pushing it under the folds of the blanket around Boyd. Then he swung the pot, with its burden of beef and water, out over the fire, to hang on its chain to boil. Shelley, Boyd asked again. His eyes were open, too bright, and he stared about him, plainly puzzled. Then he looked up at his nurse, and his forehead wrinkled with effort. Drew? But Drew was listening to those oncoming hoofs. The strangers would see two horses. If they came in, they would find two men. It was as simple as that. And if they wore the wrong color uniforms, Weatherby above and Kirby in the lean-to would be ready and waiting for trouble. Drew laid fresh wood on the fire. Since he could not hide, he felt he'd better get as much light as possible in case of future trouble. The last they had heard, the Yankees were concentrating at Murfreesboro and Nashville, but scouts would be out, dogging the flanks of the Confederate forces, just as he had done the opposite during the past few days. There was silence now in the lane, a suspicious quiet. Drew deduced that the riders had dismounted and might be closing in about the cabin. A prickle of chill climbed his spine. He touched the lump under the blanket, which was his own insurance. The door burst open, sent bagging inward by a booted foot. And at the same time, a small pane in an opposite window shattered. The barrel of a rifle thrust in four inches, covering him. Drew remained where he was, his left arm thrown protectively across Boyd. Now ain't this something... The man who had booted in the door was grinning down at the two on the hearth. He wore a blue coat right enough, but it was slick with old grease across the chest, stained on one shoulder, and his breeches were linsey woolsey, his boots old and scuffed, and his bush of unkept hair was covered with a battered hat, topping a woolen scarf wound about ears and neck. The chill on Drew's spine was a band of ice. This was no Union trooper. The scout could identify a far worse threat now. Bushwhacker. Gorilla. One of the jackals who hung on the fringe of both armies, looting, killing, and changing sides when it suited their purposes. Such a man was a murderer who would kill another for a pair of boots, a whole shirt, 
or the mere whim of the moment. Come in, Simmy. We got us a pair of rebs, the man bawled over his shoulder, and then turned to Drew. Don't you go getting no idea, Sonny. Jazz there, he's got a bead right on you, and Jazz, he's mighty good with that rifle gun. Now, you just pull out that colt of yours and toss it here. Make it fast, too, boy. I'm a mighty unpatient man. Drew pulled free the colt still in its holster, tossing it across the floor so that it spun against the fellow's boot. The big hairy hand scooped it up easily and tucked the weapon barrel down in his belt. The second man, smaller, with a thin face, which had an odd lopsided look, squeezed through the door and sidled along the wall of the room. His rifle pointed straight at Drew's head. He spat a blotch of tobacco juice on the hearth, spattering the edge of the top blanket which covered Boyd. "'What's the matter with him?' he demanded. "'He's sick,' Drew returned. "'You union?' The big man grinned. "'Sure, Sonny, sure. We as union scouts. Union scouts,' he repeated, that as if pleased by the sound. "'And you as rebs, which makes you our prisoners. So he's sick, huh? What's the matter?' "'I don't know.' Drew's finger were only inches away from the colt under the blanket, but he could dare no such move with the rifle covering him from the window. Jazz, any sign out thar? the big man called. Petey ain't seeing any, just two horses. The words came from behind the still-ready rifle. Well, tell him to look around some more, and you can come in, Jazz. These here rebs ain't going to be no trouble, is you, Sonny? Drew shook his head. Luck appeared to be on his side. Once Jazz was in here, they could hope to turn tables on the three of them, with Weatherby and Kirby taking them by surprise. Jazz appeared in the doorway a moment or so later. He was younger than his two companions, younger and more tidy. His coat was also blue, and he wore a forge cap pulled down over hair, very fair in the firelight. There was a fluff of young beard on his chin, and he carried himself with the stance of a drilled man. Deserter, thought Drew. The newcomer surveyed Drew and Boyd expressionlessly, his eyes oddly shallow, and tramped past them to hold his hands to the blaze on the hearth, keeping his rifle between his knees. Then he reached up with his weapon, hooked the barrel in the chain supporting the pot, and pulled that to him sniffing at the now bubbling contents. You, Reb, the big man towered over Drew. Get this friend of yourn and drag him over there. Us wants to get warm. Drew, Boyd looked up questioningly, his feverish gaze passing on the gorilla. Where's Shelley? The big man's grin faded. His boot came out, caught Drew's leg in a vicious prod. Who's this here Shelley? Where at is he? Shelley was his brother, Drew said, nodding at Boyd. He's dead. Dead, huh? How come the sunny boy here's asking for him then? He leaned over them, and his fingers grabbed and twisted at the front of Drew's threadbare shell jacket. I'm asking you, Reb. Where at is this here Shelley? He seemed only to flick his wrist, but the strength behind that move 
world drew away from Boyd, brought him part of the way to his feet, and slammed him against the wall, where the big man held him pinned with small expenditure of effort. Shelley's dead. Somehow Drew kept his voice even. Kirby, Weatherby, they were there. Boyd's out of his head with fever. Jazz let the pot swing back over the fire, moving toward Boyd to lean over and stare at the boy's flushed face. Might be so, Jazz remarked. Two horses, two men. Neither one much to bother about. Better be so. The big man held Drew tight to the wall and cuffed him with his other hand. Dazedly, his head ringing, Drew slipped to the floor as the other released him. Now, the boot prodded Drew again. Get your friend over there, Reb. Drew stumbled back and went on his knees beside Boyd. His fingers groped under the edge of the blanket, closing on the colt. Chaz was inspecting the pot again, and Simi had moved forward to share the warmth of the hearth. With the revolver still in his hand, though concealed by the blanket, Drew pulled Boyd away from the fire as best he could, aware the big man was watching closely. Jazz reached up to the crude mantel shelf, brought down a wooden spoon, and wiped it on a handkerchief he pulled from an inner pocket. This ain't fancy grub, he observed to the room at large, but it's better than nothing. You want Simmy to bring in Petey, Hatch? The captain's coming. Simmy's remark was made in a tone of objection. Hatch swung his head around to eye the smaller man. You bring Petey in, he ordered. Now, he added. For a second or two it appeared that Simmy might rebel, but Hatch stared him down. Jazz scooped out a spoonful of the pot's contents and blew over it. You fix on having a showdown with the Captain Hatch, he asked. The big man laughed. I has me a showdown with anyone who gets too big for his britches, Jazz. You, Reb, he indicated Drew, with a thumb poking through a ragged glove. Supposing you just show us what you got in them there pockets of yarn. Jazz laughed. Don't figure to find anything worth taking on a Reb, do you, Hatch? Most of them are poorer in dirt. Now, that's where you figure wrong, Jazz. Hatch shook his head, as might one deploring the stupidity of the young. Lots of them little Reb boys has got something salted away, a nice watch, maybe, or a ring or such. Them, what comes from the big houses, kind of hold on to things from home. What you got, Reb? A gun in your back. Jazz spun in half-crouch, his rifle coming up. There was an explosion of a shot, making a deafening clap of thunder in the room. The younger bushwhacker cried out. His rifle lay on the floor, and he was holding a bloody hand. Kirby stood in the doorway, a colt in each hand, and now Drew produced his own hidden weapon, centering it on Hatch. The door burst open for the second time as Simmy was propelled through it, his hands shoulder-high, palm out, and empty. Weatherby came behind him, a gun belt slung over one shoulder, two extra revolvers thrust into his own belt. They got Petey, Simmy gabbled, got him with a knife. His forward brush brought him against the wall, and he made no move to turn around to face them. 
He could only plaster his body tight to that surface as if he longed to be able to ooze out in safety through one of its many cracks. Shuck the hardware, Kirby ordered. Hatch's grin was gone. The fingers of his big hand were twitching, and the twist of his mouth was murderous. Listen, the Texan's tone was frosty. I've a finger what cramps on my trigger when I get riled, and I'm getting riled now. You loose off that there fightin' iron and do it quick. Hatch's hand went to his gun. He jerked it from the holster and slung it across the floor. Now the one you got holding up your belly and your knife. The colt that Hatch had taken from Drew and a bowie knife with a long blade joined the armament already on the boards. Drew made a fast harvest of all the weapons. Well, we sure got us some bounty hunter's bag, Kirby observed, as he and Weatherby finished using the captive's own belt to pinion them. There may be more coming. They talked about some captain. Drew brought Boyd back to the warmth of the fire. Weatherby nodded. I'll scout. He disappeared out the door. Jazz was rocking back and forth, holding on one knee the injured hand. Kirby had roughly bandaged. The other arm was fastened behind him. There were tears of pain on his cheeks. But after his first outcry, he had not uttered a sound. Hatch, on the other hand, had been so foul-mouthed that Kirby had torn off a length of bed covering and gagged him. Simmy sat now with his back against the wall, watching their every move. Of the three, he seemed the likeliest to talk. Kirby appeared to share in Drew's thoughts on that subject. For now, he bore down on the small man. You expecting some friends? Compared to his tone of moments earlier, the Texan's voice was now mildly friendly. We'd like to know, seeing as how we're thinking of some hospitable thoughts about entertaining them proper. Simmy stared up at him, bewildered. Kirby shook his head, his expression of a man dealing with a stubbornly stupid child. Listen, hombre, I'm from West Texas, and that there's Comanche country, leastwise it was Comanche country, for we Tejanos moved in. Now Comanches, they're an unfriendly people, about the unfriendliest Indians, except Apaches, a man can meet up with. And they have them some neat little ways of making a man talk, or rather yell his lungs out. It ain't too hard to learn them tricks, not for a bright boy like me, it ain't. You able to understand that? Kirby did not scowl. He did not even touch the little man. But as one drawing word was joined to the next, Simmy held his body tighter against the wall, as if to escape by pushing. I ain't done nothing, he cried. That's what I said, little man, you ain't done nothing. But you're going to do something, talk. Simmy's pale tongue swept across working lips. What? You want? What do you want to know? He stuttered. You expecting to meet some friends here? The rest of the boys and the captain. They may be catching up. How many boys? Simmy's tongue tripped again. He swallowed. Drew thought he was trying to produce a crumb of defiance. Kirby reached out, selecting Hatch's bowie knife from the cache of captured weapons. He waded across the palm of his hand, as if trying its balance, and then, 
with deceptive ease, flipped it. The point thudded into the wall scant inches away from Simmy's right ear, and the little man's head bobbed down so that his nose hit one of his hunched-up knees. How many boys? Kirby repeated. Depends. On what? On how good the raiding is. After a fight, there's always some pickings. Drew was suddenly sick. What Simmy hinted at was the vulture work among the dead and the wounded too enfeebled to protect themselves from being plundered. He saw Kirby's lip set into a thin line. Kind of throw a wide rope, don't you, little man? How many, boys? Maybe five, six. And this here captain? He tells us where there's good pickings. For a moment, the man produced a spark of spite. He's a reb like you. Have you used this place before? Drew broke in. If this was either a regular or temporary rendezvous for this jackal pack, the quicker they were away, the better. No, the captain said to meet here tonight. I don't suppose he said when. Kirby's question was answered by a shake of Simmy's unkept head. Boyd suddenly moved in his cocoon of blankets, struggling to sit up, and Drew went to him. He was coughing again with a strangling fight for breath, which was frightening to watch. Drew steadied him until the attack was over, and he lay in the other's arms, gasping. The liquid in the pot on the fire was cooked by now. Perhaps if Boyd had some of that in him, but dared they stay here? Kirby squatted back on his heels as Drew settled Boyd on his blankets and went to unhook the pot. Then the Texan supported the younger boy as Drew ladled spoonfuls of the improvised broth into his mouth. The doc'll come, Kirby murmured. Croft promised to guide him here. But this gang business... I don't see how we can move him now. Drew was feeding the broth between Boyd's lips, trying to ease the cough, his wits too dulled to tackle any problem beyond that. Which means we gotta keep company from moving in. If we could raise us a few of the boys now, Kirby was speculative. If you went back to camp, gave the alarm, Traggart doesn't want a gang like this running loose around here. They say they're union. Maybe they do have some connection with the Yankees. With a Reb Cap'n throwing in with them? Most of these polecats play both sides of the border, when it'll get them anything they want. And they could try and pay their way with the Yankees by telling them about our movements here. Could you make it to camp fast? Kirby grunted. Sure. Easiest drifting down river on one of them there steamers. But leaving you here with that mess of skunks is something else. Weatherby's out there. Anything or anyone getting by him would have to come in on wings. And wings don't come natural to this breed of critter. All right. I don't see how there's much else we can do. We can't go pulling the kid round any more. I'll give Weatherby the high sign and make it back as quick as I can. Let's see if these here ropes is staked out tight. He made a careful inspection of their three captives' bonds and Drew laid the assorted armament to hand. But Kirby hesitated by the door. Keep your eyes peeled, amigo. Weatherby, he can pull that in-and-out game through the loft like he did before. But one man 
can't be all over the range at once. I know. Drew studied the remnants of battered furniture about the room. He thought he could pull the bed frame across the outer door and shove the table and bench in front of the door to the lean-to. And there was a section of wall right under the broken window which could not be seen by anyone outside. I've some precautions in mind. I'm riding then. See ya. Kirby was gone with a wave of hand. Boyd was quiet again. The broth must have soothed him. Drew shifted the other's body to the floor on the spot, safely under the window. As he returned to gather up the arms, he noted that Jazz was watching him. Some of the first shock of his wound had worn off, so that the gorilla was not only aware of his present difficulties, but was eyeing Drew in a manner which suggested he had not accepted the change in their roles as final. Drew hesitated. He could tie back that wounded hand, too, but he was sure the other could not use it to any advantage, and Drew could not bring himself to cause the extra pain such a move would mean. Not that he had any illusions concerning the bushwhackers' care for him, had their situation been reversed. Simmy, once Kirby had gone, moved against the wall, holding up his head with a sigh of relief. He, too, watched Drew move the furniture, and when the scout did not pay any attention to him, he spoke. What's he going to do with us, Reb? Hatch's eyes over the gag were glaring evil. Jazz was watching the two Confederates with an intent measuring stare. But Simmy wilted a little when Drew looked at him directly. You're prisoners of war, as Union scouts. Simmy wiggled uncomfortably, and Drew continued the grilling. You are Union scouts? Sure, sure, we're Union, ain't we, Jazz? He appealed eagerly to his fellow. Jazz neither answered nor allowed his gaze to wander from Drew. Then you'll get the usual treatment of a prisoner. Drew was short, trying to listen for any movement beyond the squalid room. Weatherby was out there, and Drew put a great deal of trust in the Cherokee's ability. But what if the captain and the remaining members of this outlaw gang arrived, before Kirby returned with help? Seeing that Boyd appeared to be asleep, Drew once again inspected his weapons, checking the loading of the revolvers and rifle. Jazz's rifle was one of the new Spencers. The Yankees loaded those on Sunday and fired all week, or so the boys said. It was a fine piece, new and well cared for. He examined it carefully and then looked up to meet Jazz's flat stare, knowing that the gorilla's hate was the more bitter for seeing his prized weapon in the enemy's hands. The Spencer, Simmy's Enfield, old and not very well kept, five colts beside his own, Hatch's bowie knife and another, almost as deadly looking, which had been found on Jazz, equipped Drew with a regular arsenal. But it was not until he settled down that Drew knew he faced a far more deadly enemy, sleep. The fatigue he had been able to battle as long as he was on the move, hit him now with the force of a clubbed rifle. He knew he dared not even lean back against the wall or relax any of his vigilance, not so much over the prisoners and Boyd as over himself. Somehow he held on, trying to move. The pile of wood by the hearth 
was diminishing steadily. He would soon have to let the fire die out. To venture out of the house in quest of more fuel was too risky, and always he was aware of Jazz's tight regard. Simmy had fallen asleep, his thin weasel face hidden as his head lolled forward on his chest. Hatch's eyes were also closed. Drew straightened with a start, conscious of having lost seconds or moments somewhere in a fog. He jerked aside, perhaps warned by his scout's sixth sense more than any real knowledge of danger. There was a searing flash beside his head, a bite of fire on his cheek. If he had not moved, he would have received that blazing brand straight between the eyes. Now he rolled, snapping out a shot. A man shouted hoarsely, and Drew strove to avoid a kick, struggling to win to his feet, unable to tell just what was happening. End of chapter 12